Let's open our Bible to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. We live in a day when many hear the word of God, but it's not enough just to hear the word of God. The rampant disobedience that we see in the church. So you guys understand there's a difference. There are those who are in the world, those who are not God's people, those who are opposed to God either actively or passively. And you know the devil doesn't care whether you're actively opposed to God or whether you, you think you're just neutral. Jesus said there is no such thing as neutral. You're either for me or against me. It's the enemy that likes us to believe that there is this neutral position we can live in. And so I'm not against God. I'm just neutral. Jesus said that's, that's not reality. That does not exist. Though a lot of people live their lives as though they're just neutral. I don't have a problem with God. You know, I just, you know, that's fine. If there's a God, no problem. I'm not against him. I don't hate him. The enemy doesn't care whether we're passively or aggressively against God, whether, we're, whether we think we're neutral or whether we think we are on a crusade to get rid of God. As the church, it's not my job to judge the world. God will judge the world one day. As a pastor, the Bible says my responsibility is the church. And I am to absolutely, and you are to absolutely look around you and judge those, not in an evil way. So Galatians 6 says, if you see your brother in sin, go to him. You who are spiritual, go to him. What have you just done? If you see me in sin, what is your obligation as a believer? It's to come to me. If you love me, it's to come to me and say, Pastor Jeff, I see you're in sin. And the point of you coming to me in love is to restore me because you're supposed to love me. Now, what did you have to do in order to determine whether I was in sin or not? You had to make a judgment about something in my lifestyle or something in my life that was contrary to God's word. Jesus, in his parable of the guy with the log in his eye, who was going to deal with the guy that had a speck in his eye, Jesus said, before you go remove the speck from your brother's eye, take the log or the beam out of your own eye. Jesus never said, hey, don't worry about that speck. Just forget it. I'll take care of that. Jesus said, no, you've judged your brother has a speck in his eye, but just don't go with a beam in your own. In other words, get your own house in order. It doesn't mean that we're sinless and we're perfect and we can never help somebody who's having difficulty or who's struggling with sin. We have to be sinless. If that was the case, we couldn't help anybody because we'll never be sinless. We are inherently as human beings sinful. Well, what's the difference if I go to help someone who's struggling with sin? It's not that I'm sinless. It's that I realize that I am sinful. 
And what do I do with that? I give that to God. I confess it to God. I repent and I ask God to help me. And so when I judge that my brother is struggling with sin, if I love him, the Bible says, go to him, you who are spiritual. Who's spiritual? Someone is spiritual when they recognize they too are a sinner and they too are in need of God's grace. And the point of going to that person is not to be hypocritical or condemning or judging. The point of going to them is to help them, to restore them. And so as a pastor, my responsibility is to deal with the body of Christ, with the church, with God's people. And the sin that should bother me more than any other sin is the sin that's within the church. We see a lot of sin taking place in our culture. And when we look at the world, when we look at those people who reject God, however they do it, we should not be surprised at their sinfulness and the wickedness and the, and the consequences of those sinful and wicked acts, not just for them personally, but how it affects all of us in our culture. And we should pray about that. And we should seek to change that. And how do we change that? We change that by praying and believing the gospel and trusting that as we preach the gospel, as we live the gospel, the gospel will bring heart transformation to people. And as people's hearts are transformed, as their lives are transformed, as they become born-again children of God, their lives should change. Their behavior should change. Their attitude should change. And that's how our culture and our society has changed, one heart at a time. And if we're all seeking and believing for God to change hearts, then we should seek and believe God for our culture to be transformed as hearts are transformed. So Paul says this in his letter to the Corinthians, it's not our place to judge the world. God will do that. It's our place to, to deal with the body of Christ, the church, and to disciple believers and to help believers walk as Jesus walked, to walk in righteousness, to walk in obedience to God's word. And as we do that and as we spread that message and as we disciple those around us, that spills over into our culture, and our culture is transformed. How have we come to the place we are today? I mean, to me, the glaring, the glaring and the obvious example is when you have people fighting to murder babies after they've already been born. We'll keep them comfortable until we decide it's time to murder them. When we have politicians and pastors, people who profess to be believers, clapping and cheering because we've just made it legal to murder babies up to the point of birth. I expect that from the world, but I don't expect that from the church. And if the church just remains quiet about those things, because I've, I've had people leave this congregation because I preach sermons like this. And they told me to my face, 
Jesus was not political. And it's not your place to preach political sermons. And we will not come to a church where a pastor preaches political sermons. I said, I'm sorry, but this has nothing to do with politics. This has to do with life. This is not political. This is spiritual. This is spiritual. This has nothing to do with politics. So there's a lot of people hearing the word of God. The the word's everywhere. We got Bibles coming out of our ears. We got preachers on TV and on the radio. The problem is that no one is obeying the word. We live in a day when we hear the word of God, but rampant disobedience in the church shows us that our hearing is not mixed with faith. Here in the fourth chapter of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews presents to us the promise of his rest, a rest that God promises us in Jesus. The power of his word and the perfection of our high priest. But when we consider the promise of his rest and the perfect priesthood of Jesus, I want you to understand, and we're going to talk about how those truths impact us and what they mean to our lives. But the word of God is the central point. It's the pivot on which both of these turn. How we respond to his promise and his priesthood will depend on what we do with the word of God. So let's read Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. And as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had not given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. 
and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Seeing then that, he, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your word. And we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds. We ask that you would open our hearts, that you would plant the seed of your good word deep in the good soil of our heart. Father, we need we need a harvest. We need a manifestation of your righteous fruit, Lord, in the church to bring transformation to the world around us. Father, we ask that you would do this for your glory, that you would do this, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapter begins with this declaration that there is a promise that remains of entering his rest. A promise remains of entering his rest. And we who have believed do enter that rest, and it is by faith that we enter into the promise of God. So this is the promise of a rest, the promise that there is a rest in Jesus that we can enter into. But it is by faith that we enter into that promise. It is true for any promise of God. There is no promise God makes that we can enter into, that we can benefit from apart from faith. It is only through faith that we enter into God's promise. Rest is a term used here to express the deep-seated craving for satisfaction that is yet unattained. You know why people get addicted to substances? It doesn't matter whether it's drugs or alcohol or food. People get addicted to all kinds of things. Substances, they get addicted to behaviors, they get addicted to work, they get addicted to play. You know why? Because they're trying to satisfy this inherent craving. They're trying to fill and be satisfied. But guess what? You're never going to fill that craving. There is no satisfaction, or we could say it like this, there is no true rest outside of Jesus. If Jesus cannot satisfy your craving, if Jesus cannot fill the void, if Jesus does not become your rest, there will be no rest for you. You can search high and low. You can inject yourself and consume every substance you can imagine. You can busy yourself doing all kinds of things, but you're going to come up empty every time because the only thing, the only one that can satisfy the craving and the emptiness that we seek to obtain is Jesus. He is our rest. And there is a promise of entering into that rest, but we can only enter it by faith. Faith is the only way. Through faith in Christ, we enter that rest 
Through faith in Christ, we have an inward assurance of entering that rest. But I want you to understand that even though we may have that assurance, we may not find it outwardly. And what I mean by that is, and this is the problem with, with, with us as humans, we're looking for outward things to give us what we want, to give us what we need. And we don't realize that what we really need is Jesus. And until we realize that, we're going we're gonna to suffer. And it's not that if we say, okay, well, I'm going to trust Jesus, and now, now God's going to, you know, I'm just going to feel this constant satisfaction all the time. No, that's not it. Because we're still, in a sense, looking to outward things to satisfy us. And it's not that we can't ever be satisfied. It's not that we can't ever find rest. It's not that, that we can't ever find that moment where, you know, things are great, things are good. But as great and as good as things can be on this earth, they're never going to be as great and as good as they will be when the curse is gone. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're looking for an outward satisfaction. We're looking for an outward rest. But the rest that God has promised us in Jesus is more than just an outward rest, an outward satisfaction we, we are able to gain or gather from the things of this world. And even though we may not find it outwardly here on this earth, through faithfulness, we are confident that we will find it in Christ one day in heaven, in his presence, in glory, for an eternity, in the regeneration of all things. We're going to live in the presence of God. Heaven is merging with earth. And we will live in a regenerated earth and regenerated bodies. And we will finally be at rest. And as restful as you may think your life is right now, I promise you in that day that you truly enter into the rest that Jesus has for you, you won't, we can't imagine it. Because we live in this world and there is constant conflict, and there is constant death because sin and the curse and all that the curse has brought is still present with us even though Jesus has defeated our enemies, even though Jesus has saved us, our bodies are still dying. You grow older every day, and one day you realize, I can't do any more physically what my mind tells me I can do. I'm going to try, and you can try, but you might find yourself injuring yourself, right? Well, I used to be able to jump over that. Well, I used to be able to jump off that, and it didn't hurt me. Why does it hurt now when I jump off that? Well... It's this thing called sin. It's this thing called the curse. We're wearing down. It's just the way it is. And the Bible tells us that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the outer man is perishing. 
But the inner man is being renewed day by day. Our problem is we focus too much on the outer man. And we ignore the inner man. And we're all trying to find ways to, to slow our outer man perishing down. In fact, if we could find a way to make our outer man live forever, we do it. And we don't even give thought about our inner man. And God says your outer man is perishing day by day, but your inward man in Christ Jesus is being renewed day by day. Why don't we focus on the renewal of the inner man? Why are we so, why are we so focused on the outer man? Why are we so tormented because our outer man is perishing? Why aren't we rejoicing because our inner man is being renewed day by day? It's because we're looking for our rest here in this earthly realm instead of knowing that our true rest, our ultimate rest, our eternal rest is not going to come in this earthly, mortal, corrupted realm. It's going to come in a realm free of corruption, free of time, free of mortality, but eternally made new in Jesus. That's what God has promised us. And the scripture exhorts us to be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The disobedience spoken of here is unbelief. The Bible equates unbelief with disobedience, and it equates disobedience with unbelief. The promise of his rest is entered into by those who believe. Those who believe obey his voice. We are disobedient when we hear the word, but our hearing is not mixed with faith. The word of God we hear is no profit to us if, we, if it is not mixed with faith. It is not enough to simply hear the word. We must believe the word. And if we believe the word, we're going to obey the word. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans concerning hearing and believing the word. Romans chapter 10 Verses 16 and 17, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what the apostle Paul teaches us through his letter to the Romans. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When we hear the word, the true test of whether we believe the word is our obedience to the word. True faith will always produce obedience. I sat in our Sunday school lesson today and I thought, man, it's so cool how God always works out that the Sunday school lesson goes right along with my sermon. And I don't, you know, I just, I don't even make the Sunday school lesson most of the time. But I made it today. And we're in Ezekiel. And we read all these scriptures where God is pronouncing judgment on Israel because of their idolatry and their sin, because of their disobedience. And he says, I'm going to do this that they will know that I am the Lord, their God. That they will know that I am the Lord, their God. That they will know that I am the Lord, their God. And is God's point is that he just wants us to know no, the point is God wants us to obey. The point for Israel was not just that they didn't know the Lord was God. The point was they were in rebellion. They were disobeying him. 
and they were offering their children to idols. You know, they did that. That's what the pagan nations did. God sent Joshua in. He said, wipe them out. And their abominations, and do not join their abomination. And guess what Israel did? Centuries later, they're still joining their abominations. And there were kings in Israel that offered their children to Moloch. I mean, put them in the fire and sacrifice their children in hopes that Moloch would bless them. While at the very same time professing to be children of the God of Israel the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And while they professed to be children of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, guess what they were doing? They were offering their children to idols. And you say, well, how, how could they do that? That doesn't even make sense. Yeah, it doesn't, does it? Kind of like pastors standing up in Planned Parenthood abortion clinics and saying, we bless the work of God here. Because all that's happening is that clinic is no different then those altars to Moloch, where those Israelites would bring their children and offer their children to a false god, that's all a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic is. That's all any abortion clinic is. It's just an altar for someone to come and offer their child to a god, a false god, a pagan god, while at the very same time saying they believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, I'm sorry it doesn't work that way. Because it's more than whether you just acknowledge God. You can acknowledge him all day long. But the question is, are you going to obey him? And if you obey him, you're not going to murder your children. You're not going to offer them to false gods. You're not going to worship false gods. You're not going to look to false gods. In fact, you're going to run from them. You're going to shun them. You're going to eliminate them from your life. Israel didn't do that. And neither is the church. In America today, she is just as, if not more, adulterous and wicked as Israel ever was. And until pastors and Christians, not just pastors, I want to be really clear about this. It is not just my duty to make these things known. If you are a follower of Christ, if you profess to be a child of God, it is your obligation to make known the truth of God. It is not just the job of pastors and ministers and teachers to tell the church about these things, to tell the church in no uncertain terms, you are in sin if you support that. You are in sin if you vote for that. You are in sin, I don't care who or what, he or she is, you are in sin. And as a person who professes to be a follower of Christ, you should not be worshiping at that altar. Now, people in the world, that's not our business. But people who profess to be Christians, that's our business. You guys know this. People don't like you getting in their business, right? Well, guess what? Israel didn't like it when God judged them and sent foreign armies to destroy them. And if you don't think God is still in the business of judging nations, you better hide and watch. 
because he will absolutely do it. My father was a World War II vet. My father. My uncle. You know, that wasn't that long ago. That millions and millions and millions of people died in that war. That millions, millions of people were slaughtered just because of their ethnicity, just because of their name. And before that slaughter and before that war took place, you know what took place in Germany? You probably don't because we don't teach this in history. But long before Hitler built concentration camps and put Jews and gypsies and all kinds of people in there, you know what he did? He went through, well, he legalized abortion. He went through and he went into all the places where the mentally retarded and the physically deformed were, and he just had them eliminated. They would go through mental hospitals and they would just quietly eliminate people who didn't measure up, who were a drain on society. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? If you don't think that can happen today, you better wake up because it can absolutely happen today. And it will happen if the church does not stand up, take a stand for what is right, and let her voice be heard. Simply hearing the word does not mean we believe or we obey the word, but we can only believe and obey the word that we have heard. You got to hear it to, to, to believe it, and you got to hear it to obey it. Thus it is written, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So it is by faith that we enter the promise of his rest. Faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. The promise of his rest is linked to hearing and believing the gospel of his word. Our obedience to his word bears out our faith. There is the promise of his rest. There is the power of his word. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Notice how the nature and the operation of the word of God is broken down here. The word is living it is, the live, it is living with the life of the living God who uttered it. The word of God is living. This is not just ink on paper. This is the living word of God uttered by the living God. It's powerful to save. The word is powerful. It's energized. It's operative. It's effective for God's purpose. God does not operate in this world apart from his word. God does not work in you apart from his word. God does not reveal things to you that are apart from his word. Anything God reveals to you will be consistent with his word. And if it is not consistent with his word, then he didn't reveal it to you. Someone or something else did. And you would be wise to not heed it. 
Well, how are you going to know if it's consistent with his word? That necessitates that you actually read this thing we call the Bible. That you read it, that you study it, that you meditate on it, that you develop the habit of consuming the word of God so that when God speaks to you, there is a word in there for the spirit of God to illuminate and to energize. David wrote, he said, your word, O God, have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word is sharper. That word means to cut. It literally means cutting. The word is cutting. It's piercing through everything to the inmost depths of our being. And as it cuts to that inmost depth, the word is a discerner. As it cuts through and through, it opens up all. It discerns the inmost thoughts and the intents of the heart. Nothing is hidden from his sight, but all things are exposed and open to the eyes of him. We must give an account. We can hear the word. We can quote the word, but our obedience to the word marks our faith in the word. In this, the word exposes all and lays open all things. Our response to the word of God reveals the thoughts and the intents of our heart like I'd say, and this is true for me, it's true for everybody, we only really do the things we believe. We can say we believe all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, it's the things that we actually do that really show what we actually believe. Our response to the word reveals the thoughts and the intents of our heart. It discerns what is happening on the inside. This is why we must not only be hearers of the word, for if we are hearers only and not doers, the Bible says we deceive ourselves. James writes this, James chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. James writes, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. When we hear the word and our hearing is not mixed with faith, we fail to be doers of the word. We are forgetful hearers and we are deceived into thinking that our hearing only somehow is profitable for us, but it has no profit for us if we hear the word and it's not mixed with faith. Hearing the word, speaking the word, reading the word, praying the word, studying the word with faith will result in our becoming doers of the word. As doers of the word, we will be doers of the work. Do you notice the, the progression there in James? We're hearers of the word, 
We're doers of the word and we're doers of the work. That is our faith will be lived out in action as we continue in the word of God and are doers of the work. There is the promise of blessing in all that we do. So there is the promise of his rest. There is the power of his word. His word and our obedience to the word has the power to bring blessing all that we do. And I'm not just talking about being blessed in our personal lives. I want to be blessed in my personal life. I'm talking about the work of God, the work of the kingdom being blessed. The work of the kingdom that the church is commanded to do is going to be blessed when the church begins to rise up in obedience to the word of God. That's when God will begin to bless our work, our kingdom work. That's when we're going to begin to see hearts changed and the culture transformed. It's not going to happen overnight. We didn't get here overnight. But if we don't start somewhere, if we don't begin right now with our own generation and this generation coming up after us, it's not going to be good. But if we will be obedient to the powerful word of God, the promise of God is that he will bless all that we do. That's what we're believing God for. That's what we're trusting for God when we begin Koinonia Classical Christian School. We believe that that school and the vision of that school and discipling children in the things of God is consistent with what God commands us to do. And we believe that if we are obedient to the word of God, that God will bless our work. And in blessing our work, the culture is going to be blessed because transformation is going to take place. We can't change the entire world, but guess what? God says you can change the world around you because you can experience change and transformation. And that change and that transformation in you can spill over to others. And it spreads just like corruption spreads. promise of his rest, the power of his word. In the last part of this chapter, we see the perfection of his priesthood. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Seeing then, so after hearing about the promise of his rest, after hearing about the power of his word that discerns the inmost parts of our heart and our very being, then the writer of Hebrews says, all things are laid open. Then he says, seeing then, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our great high priest. He's not only called a priest, but a great high priest. This is his eternal office. He is our great high priest. Having offered the sacrifice of his body and his blood once and for all, he eternally lives to make intercession on our behalf before the Father. He is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He has gone from this earth, passed through the heavens, ascended to the throne and received the kingdom And he ever lives now, sitting at the majesty on high. He lives to make intercession on our behalf. 
He is our great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness because he was not just God, but he was man. And he experienced flesh and blood and he lived on this earth and he walked on this earth just like we do. He thirsted just like we thirst. He hungered just like we hunger. He hurt just like we hurt. He is our great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. He is our great high priest who was in all points tempted as we are, yet, listen, without sin. He was tempted in every point that we're tempted, yet he did not sin. And this is why he alone could atone for our sin. This is why your blood or my blood or any other human or animal blood cannot atone for the sins of humanity. It had to be a man who was tempted in all points, yet without sin. He is our great high priest who serves in the perfection of his priesthood. If we hear God's word and believe what God has uttered, then we must trust in the perfection of our great high priest. We cannot profess trust in Jesus and then try to atone for our sins in full or in part through penance or dead works or through guilt or self-condemnation. There is nothing we can add to the sacrifice offered to God in Jesus Christ. We did not offer up Jesus. Jesus offered himself as the spotless, sinless Lamb of God to take away our sins. When we sin, we must look to the great high priest in all of his perfection. He was the perfect sacrifice, and now he is the perfect high priest that eternally lives to intercede on our behalf. The earthly high priests of old were only types of the great high priest that we have in Jesus. And as the earthly high priest foreshadowed Jesus in Israel and was the advocate for the nation before God, so Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Listen to John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John writes, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the whole world. Not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. Jesus is the righteous advocate the defense attorney with the Father. He himself is our atoning sacrifice for our sins. So don't rest in your sin. Rest in Jesus who takes away your sin. Don't settle for sin. Settle to walk away from your sin by the power of Jesus' blood. Don't cling to the works of the flesh, but walk in the Spirit and no longer fulfill the lust of the flesh. Shun the works of the flesh and seek the fruit of the Spirit. All of this is possible and made real in us by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, our sacrifice, and our great high priest, who ministers eternally on our behalf in the perfection of his priesthood. And that is what the word of God reveals to us. You have heard his word. 
question is, do you believe it? Do you have faith in it? Have you heard his word mixed with faith today? If you have, look to Jesus, trust only in Jesus, for he alone can bring you into his rest. He alone ministers in the perfection of his great high priesthood, and he alone is the living word that not only saves us, but transforms us and conforms us to his glorious image. Trust him and be saved. Trust him and be changed. Trust him and rest in him, for he who promised is faithful. He has promised and he is faithful, so trust in him. Don't just hear what God says. Trust in what God says. Believe what God says. And let it inform the way you live your life. Amen? I want to invite you to come to the table of the Lord. Let's stand. So I'm going to give you your charge. We're going to sing the doxology. Um, I'm going to pray for our food. It's mission meal. So immediately after this, we're going to set the tables up and we're going to have a meal in here. You're all welcome to stay. I hope you can. I hope you do. We'll break bread together and uh, honor our missionaries, give to them and trust the Lord to provide for the work that they're doing. Amen. Here's your charge. There remains a promise of his rest. We enter that rest by faith in Jesus Christ. If we are not trusting Jesus, there is no rest for us in this life or in the life to come. The promise of his rest does not imply there is no longer work for us. There is much work. Remember the exhortation of James. If we are doers of the word, we will be doers of the work. In other words, our faith will be borne out by our works the same way a tree it bears fruit and is thus known. We must hear the word and we must hear it mixed with faith. And we must live it out in obedience through our faith. Faith is always linked to obedience as obedience flows out of faith. We must allow the word to operate in us and to operate on us, cutting us and piercing us through and through to expose those things that need to be laid open and removed from the inmost depths of our heart, the things we like to keep hidden and the things we like to keep forgotten. In all things, we must look to Jesus, our great high priest, who ministers in perfection as our advocate with the Father. There is no other thing we need. Jesus will suffice for all that we need. We must trust in him, and that trust must be manifest in a lifestyle that not only honors him, but seeks to advance his kingdom and wage the spiritual warfare we are engaged in until he comes again or until he calls us to our rest in him. So as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom will not come, and it shall not be done apart from each of us being doers of the word and as doers of the work, because they go hand in hand. So let us hear, let us do, let us work, and let us fight until his kingdom comes, until his will is done on earth in us as it is in heaven. Amen.